Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. I have got a wonderful interview for you today with Dr. Liz Morish about the current state, the current dreadful state of higher education and what that means for the people within higher education. But first, I wanted to remind you that on January 1st, I kicked off the new series, Anarchism 101. So that episode is just me reading a famous essay by Emma Goldman, Anarchism, What It Really Stands For. And if you have questions about that essay, Emma Goldman, Emma Goldman's role in anarchism, please email me as soon as you can. If you get them to me in early January, I will be able to answer them with uh, a pair of scholars of Emma Goldman for you in an episode that comes out later in January. With that said, let's go hear from Liz Morish about higher education after the music. So my guest today is Dr. Liz Morish, like me, and also William Derizowitz, who was my guest for the discussion of the meritocracy. Liz taught in academia, but now works outside of the university system, criticizing its current managerial technocratic structure. Liz co-wrote a landmark book in critical university studies, Academic Irregularities, and writes for a blog of the same name. You can hear her voice, always both incisive and humane, calling for a better, juster university in a variety of places including at the Post-Pandemic University website and on Twitter at Liz Morish. Dr. Liz Morish, welcome to Everyday Anarchist. Thank you, Graham. It's good to be with you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. I've, I really did, once I found your work, really admired it and thought this is someone that I want to talk to about the, the structures of the university and how they are in, inhibiting learning, inhibiting our souls, ourselves. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And we come from two rather different systems, but with similar overall topologies in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the neoliberal undercurrents that have um, changed the relationships in universities between, you know, faculty and administration, faculty and students, and, and so on. I'm constantly amazed at how often you can take a history of this and just uh, erase the word Reagan and write in Thatcher or or vice versa. And then you get a very, very similar story, despite, as you say, the systems throughout the first part of the 20th century being very different in how they in how they function. But the um, do you know the work of David Simon? He wrote the t this TV show, The Wire, which became quite famous. Academics love it. No, I don't. So it's a show about um, institutional corruption in, in Baltimore, and it made David Simon very famous in, in left-wing circles. And he, he came to the University of North Carolina while I was a grad student there. And, and you know, it was, there were grad students, but it was mostly professors. I was sitting next to, you know, my dissertation director, senior distinguished professor, whatever. And David Simon just sort of pointed his finger at the assembled professors and said, I was in the newspaper business when it was a good job. Before the internet came, the uh, money people, Wall Street, they came and they destroyed the jobs. If you think you are somewhere now that is safe and cozy and they are not going to come destroy your institutions and your good jobs, you are mistaken. 
they are coming for you. And I, that was, I think, more than a decade ago. And I have found that his prophecy to be, to be correct. Yeah. And it, I don't know, do you read the work of Ben Williamson? No, oh, I don't. Uh, critic of ed tech. <laughs> and, yeah. The, the I, way I, that, I, you know, Pearson is just waiting in the wings and COVID and the shift to online has given, given them that, that boost of, um, you know, well, we can help you out with online teaching. And here's a great curriculum based on, you know, the, the textbooks that we're making money off. Um, and also, can we have a bunch of data on, on your students and, <laughs> and the way they learn? Uh, because we really want to personalize that. <laughs> you know, the, the ultimate irony of this massive impersonal algorithm delivering personalized teaching. To, to students. Oh, it is it is such a beautiful irony. So I mentioned uh, Bill DeRozowitz, who I had on recently, and he has written just so beautifully about how the promise of MOOCs is that everyone can have an Oxbridge education, everyone can have a Harvard education, but in, in fact, MOOCs will just uh, replace a certain amount of middle-class education right now and replace it with something algorithmic and impersonal. And you're precisely right. They'll say, oh, it's it's, it's personalized. We've written an algorithm that can grade your papers. It's, uh, and there's a certain grouping of people that view this as a progressive good, right? Not everyone can go to Harvard, but everyone can take an online course from Harvard that doesn't involve any contact hours with a Harvard professor. And Derizowitz says, and I agree with him, this what makes Harvard valuable is the connections you can build with those people. So the Harvard education without the connections doesn't matter how much cheaper it is. It's just a, a way to prevent people from getting the education they need. And the talk is all about um, unbundling models. <laughs> Who needs to pay for this excessive architecture, architecture in the widest possible sense. Um, but, you know, um, literal architecture, who needs the lazy river, who needs the, the climbing wall, um, when actually what you want is, is, the, is the module, the credential, the, um, the badge, as they now call it. And they're, they're kind of coercing a lot of universities, particularly middle-tier universities, in, into trying to do this. Um, and, it, and it comes, you know, the government impetus in this country is coming via um, a lifelong learning kind of credit account. Mm -hmm. So everybody is entitled to, I don't know, three years of higher education in this country to be taken at any time to start, to stop, you know, individual modules, credit accumulation through, through your life. And there's something to be said for that in terms of graduate education. But yes, I mean, as an undergraduate, your, your learning is you know, it comes out of the walls at you, you know, it really does. And you're surrounded by other people who are learning or not learning, you know, whatever is age appropriate and, and <laughs> to their liking at that particular point. You know, the fact is they do learn if, if they are to graduate. Um, and it's, you know, it's just not about the, the credentialing necessarily. Having said that, of course, it's about the credentialing and, you know, that is the university's product, so to speak. Um, 
I'm sure we'll have more to say about products later. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's, uh, so much of what you have said really resonates with me. I mean, on the one hand, it does seem like there's a huge disconnect. If you pick up a brochure for Harvard, it will say something like, you know, learning seeps from the walls, exactly as you said. And then I'm sure there's a brochure right next to it for Harvard Online that says, you don't need to be within the walls to earn this Harvard credential. And it, it doesn't matter that those things are in conflict for them because they're serving different audiences, as you say, people in different stages of life. And it's, I would say, I don't mind criticizing Harvard. I'm quite free criticizing Harvard, that both of these things are uh, just a revenue stream. And then I guess the on-campus students are also a sort of prestige stream, but you can argue that's just a revenue stream for endowment later on. And it's hard to imagine that it's hard for me to imagine that education plays a major role in this in this vision or learning, whatever you would like to call it. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is a, a positional good. And I think America, it used to be far more so than, than the UK um, with the arrival of league tables and rankings. Ugh. You know, increasingly, certainly international students are looking at those to determine which university might confer the greatest prestige uh, for when they go back home. Less so in this country, because more and more your choice of higher education is being driven by location, mm. because it's now expen tuition's expensive, it's more expensive to get a loan to pay your you know, accommodation and living expenses. So a lot more students are living at home, which usually gives them a choice of, unless you're in London, two, two or three universities. Right. The, the vast majority of students in America uh, are having that same experience. I mean, a huge number of them are in community colleges, and then most of them are going to these things called regional colleges or, or regional universities. I, I taught at one for a couple of years, and you would be forgiven if you read the Chronicle of Higher Education or books about education for not realizing these schools exist, but they are where most students, I mean, most students who go to college in America do, even if they don't live at home, it's within like an hour's drive of where they are from. And many of them live, live at home. The places where I went, you know, the University of South Carolina, I went to the Honors College and certainly it seemed to me like a much less prestigious place than some of my friends who were at MIT or Harvard or wherever. But frankly, the University of South Carolina is, is, is near the top. I mean, I think it's second tier in those U.S. News and World Reports rankings. But the third and fourth tiers are, are very large and not, not discussed about when people are having conversations like this. And some of them have started making a name for themselves by doing online, by online education. That's, that's how they have changed the conversation a little bit. Where does that leave the kind of institution that Tressie McMillan Cotton uh, has talked about in her book. Are you familiar with that one? I'm, I'm not. Um, she writes about the um, for-profit university sector, which seems to, you know, prey on low-income people who may have missed out on, you know, uh, high school um, graduation or GED um, or people coming out of the military with money right. in their pocket, you know, GI Bill kind of thing. Uh, and sort of 
offering them courses which really don't ever measure up to the promise and don't seem to really lead anywhere. Um, yeah, so my my reading of this, I'm I'm not an expert on this, but I was I was pretty well informed about this about a decade ago, which was the peak of the for-profit university in America. Um, so under a number of things, including under the uh, Obama administration, the financial incentives for the for-profit schools to enroll students has uh, drastically decreased. It became a lot harder to get the student loan. So the money was coming from the federal government. The students owed it, but they weren't paying it. They weren't just having to pay it later. And that's how these for-profit schools worked in America. Now that that has been cracked down on my, and this is where I'm on a little shakier ground, my sense is some of these regional or mid-tier schools that are you know, technically nonprofit, accredited through all the standard ways, all that stuff, have built really big online programs that are filling in the gap there. And my guess is the only real difference is that they are technically nonprofits as opposed to technically for-profits. But I would need, I would feel pretty confident about what the situation was up until about 2012 or 2013. After that, that's when I got a full-time job and was full-time teaching. And I guess I was surveying the landscape a little less. Mm-hmm. We, have you heard about the new University of Texas, which <laughs> yeah. is getting a lot of airtime and really doesn't seem to have much of a plan? Yeah, um, actually, this will, this actually is a, something that I, I want to, I'll segue this into something I want to talk to you about. So if, if you don't know, um, there's, there's a school called like the University of Austin, in, I shouldn't even say a school, uh, a vague idea yeah. for a school called like the University of Austin in Texas. And the, the, the goal behind this institution or this idea of an institution right now, it's a paper institution, is that um, the current university system in the United States has become grossly bureaucratically sclerotic, which I think is certainly true, and has also become unacceptably left-wing, which I don't think uh, the schools are unacceptably left-wing. I do think that there are real problems right now in terms of speech and teaching and academic freedom, and they don't all come from the right in, uh, in the United States universities. But this idea is some of these free-thinking intellectuals, and I've talked about in the podcast how free thinking is usually a code for, I want to get away with saying really unacceptable or hurtful things and then claim I'm I'm a free thinker. So some free thinking intellectuals and some rich people have decided they're going to start this new university that will be a new model for education in America. And I must admit, I'm watching it with interest. This is, this is what I want to ask you about, Liz, because I'm ve- when they write like the, when you read the opening of their claims, when they say like the current university system is not working and needs to be shaken up, I, I agree. I agree with that. And so when you see these universal attacks on them, I think a lot of them come in good faith. But some of them are just like, hey, the president at Harvard is saying things like, oh, well, you can't do an education this way. But it seems to me that we well, Larry to- Summers is one of the. Yes, the that's true. <laughs> Headline faculty, headlining at yes. University of Austin, isn't he? Yes, that's, um, that's, that's true. Steven Pinker. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a full plane load of people <laughs> from, from, I shouldn't say the, the name of uh, <laughs> the, the person who's 
currently on trial. <laughs> yes. Um, no, it is. It is true that this is clearly coming from some. It's this is this is a war of elites on other elites, and what they are talking about is not a truly democratic and truly free. You, university. Although I guess I sometimes, you know, I am curious to see how this plays out because I certainly am ready for something to be different about the university system. There are a lot of contradictions in this. And, you know, just as people are, you know, they, they, they understand that universities are at the cutting edge of, um, you know, bringing new knowledge into being, curating that knowledge, passing that knowledge on to the next generation. And that the science curriculum, they would be shocked if that looked anything like 1950. Mm -hmm. But you present them with an arts and humanities curriculum, and it's like, what? <laughs> Where's the classics? <laughs> you Critical race theory, where did that come from? I never heard of critical race theory. Nobody taught me about that. Feminism, what's that, you know? And they, they just expect arts and humanities to be be frozen in time and librarians to perhaps dust the books occasionally, but you know, nothing, nothing should be progressive, even in, in the sense of linear time. And, and yet at the same time, there's also a deep disregard for the past because at, precisely as you say, the, 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 obviously new books should not be written about 2017, but also new books should not be written about 1717. Whatever was whatever was written about 1717 in 1857 is is good enough. When I was an undergraduate, one of our top donors at the University of South Carolina, she said at like a board meeting or something when they were talking about whether or not they were going to replace someone who was studying 17th, like someone had retired in 17th century, I think Spanish literature or something like that. And she said something like, we don't need to spend any time teaching the 17th century, do we? She, this was just an idea of like, you're, you're, you're precisely right. I mean, I'm sure she would have agreed with teaching Plato or something because that's just the, the classics. But the, since there's no new work to be done um, on, on the past, that we know what we need to know about it, and at least in this country, and we know that America is great and slavery was bad, but we took care of that and there's nothing to talk about. Now, I this this is a this is a really common, I think, way of thinking, especially at the administrative and political level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, so then then the question is, what do we what do we do, do about it? I certainly don't. Again, I don't believe in the current university system. If you removed like political influences, I don't trust the current people who are running the universities to. To fix it, in that respect, I'm in that sense again. I'm sympathetic to this University of Austin thing. There, there is a problem. Things are out of whack. The money is not going to the right places, and the learning is not happening what like it should. Well, who's who's going to fund the University of Austin? Oh, I assume their goal is billionaires, right wing billionaires, right, probably right wing billionaires. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and there you have the problem. You know, are they going to have real academic freedom? Um, you know, are they going to bring in people who are um, pro-Palestine, for example, to talk to students? Maybe they will. But how will that sit with their donors if they do that? Are they going to bring in people on critical race theory or um, gender studies? Are they going to bring in Judith Butler for a guest lecture? Would Judith Butler even go? <laughs> 
I'd be happy um, to go along, but you know. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, why don't Why don't they invite me? I'll come. I'll come and teach a course on anarchism. Somehow, somehow, I don't think that's what they have in in mind. Um, but also, I mean, if this is a school of you know liberal arts, um, philosophical inquiry, how does that sit with the current pressure for higher education to be much more vocational and economically led or market led even not not the same thing at all but you know what i mean yes well this is this is where i would bring graber in and say you know i'm not sure that matters that much because it really is all again i mean i'm convinced by graber that most of the white collar jobs in in a developed western economy like the uk or america are not are not really necessary so this sense of you know will these people be learning anything at the University of Austin, well, I'm not sure that they're learning anything at the current institutions they're going at. Precisely as you say, they need uh, they need this credential and then they can get this job and the job will have some title like business analytics and no one knows what that means. And clearly- Project manager in this country. Everybody's a project manager. Project manager, yes. And, and I, I don't think you need a four-year or three-year degree in business to be a project manager, but you certainly don't need a, a, a three-year degree in art history to be project manager. But my sense is, what, what does it matter? If you're just going to be a project manager anyways, you might as well major in philosophy or, or Chinese poetry. And you can probably still, if you've got the right uh, institutional name stamped on you, you can still get a project manager job. This is the advice I give my students or used to give my students when they were uh, high schoolers. And I would just say, major in whatever you want and then intern for a company in the field that you want to be a project manager in because the the schools are not going to ask you, what did you learn sophomore? Sorry, the companies are not going to ask you, what, what did you learn your second semester of your first year that applies to this position we are hiring for? They're going to ask you, do you have the degree? And then, and then you have to pitch yourselves to them. At least that's my, that's my sense of it. And so when people say, oh, well, what are we going to do with, what are we going to do with these philosophy majors? Well, they're going to be doing bullshit jobs, just like, just like the business majors are doing bullshit jobs. So does it, does it, does it really matter? But that, uh, that has not trickled down to the students. They're still feeling enormous anxiety that they have to major in the right things to get the right kind of job, because it is a, it is a brutal economy out there for people who do not get the, the right kind of job. Well, the philosophy majors may well do a master's in artificial intelligence. Yes. Um, you know, or the speech majors may um, do a master's in speech and language therapy. Um, or the math major may do a master's in, I don't know, um, data data science yes absolutely i could definitely see vague and non you know these majors that don't seem to apply to any real real jobs may take people in a circuitous direction you know my my own academic background um sort of wandered to from being um as a high school student i i'm sort of specialized in modern languages and at university went, first of all, to do modern languages and changed to linguistics and phonetics. Um, phonetics took me into an area of um, acoustics, physics, really, physics and biomechanics. 
which is what my PhD was in, um, but then ended up teaching linguistics and phonetics and got into discourse analysis quite late on, sort of in the 90s. And that took me to where I am now, which would be critical university studies. So, you know, just because you major in one area, that doesn't determine your life course or, or interests. Oh, I, I completely agree with that as well. The, the, the problem is convincing. I mean, who, who, who do we have to convince? We have to convince uh, the students, their parents, the policymakers at the university and the policymakers outside of the university, the, the, the political and regulatory policymakers, that the path that you just outlined, Liz, is, is the goal of education. I, I, I completely agree, but, I, but I, despair, I despair of us convincing anyone of this. And this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I fear that the way to convince them is to say, oh, we, we did a study and we found that 37% of philosophy majors are out earning business majors after seven years. Therefore, now that we've got these numbers, we can actually justify a philosophy major based on the economics. And that is precisely not how I would like to justify it. But funnily enough, I've got exactly the figures that would show you that. <laughs> um, I don't know if you know these guys in Britain they're called um, Wonky, W-O-N-K, Wonk, H-E. No. And they're terrific. They have some of my, you know, critical university studies tweets would not agree with me. But anyway, <laughs> they are very good in handling the data and being critical of, of um, government policy with that evidence. Mm -hmm. And one of the data sets they produced about a year ago, I think, was they took every single undergraduate course and master's course in Britain um, across all the universities and plotted, um, I think it was gra graduates, yeah, it was graduate salaries, um, sort of almost immediately after graduation. And what it shows is there are a hell of a lot of business majors down in the bottom left, mm -hmm. hand, you know, very, very low on graduate salaries and some way high. I mean, you know, Oxford economics is a much better degree to take mm -hmm. high salary than business ever is. Um, but also there were a heck of a lot of English degrees that um, took you to a high earning occupation. Not that I'm advocating that as any you know, um, symbol of quality, <laughs> you know, imprimatur of, of, you know, high quality education. But it was just this utterly blows away this false argument that if you do arts and humanities, you're stuffed. And if you do STEM and engineering, then you will have a uh, be immediately shoehorned into a high earning and valuable occupation. It's a myth. It's a myth. But it, it seems to be perpetuated in the face of evidence to the contrary. Yes. So this is, this is one of those things that when you, when administrative types have data that coheres with what they want to hear, the data is very important. And when you have data that says, oh, actually our students can major in whatever they want and get good jobs. And perhaps English is, is a surprisingly good place. They, 
they they don't want to hear that. I was always shocked because English is so cheap. You know, we don't we make the students buy the books, and all they got to do is hire one of us to stick us in the room with them, and then the students are very happy because they are they are you know reading poetry and discussing culture the university administrators should love us they should they should double the the humanities and arts budget every year and the students will come flocking in but there's a sense it, it feels to me that's what the students want frequently although the new thing Bill Drewiswich writes about that in his book also is the double major in in America and they say you know he has a student who told him when he was at Yale one for me, one for my parents, you know, the art history degree for me and business for my parents. The other thing is, I mean, I taught at STEM schools, having to tell students that graduate work in biology is not, is not a path to success. And I mean, computer science is different if you're, if you're doing the right thing, but look, they say, well, I have to do STEM. I want to do physics. And I say, well, I don't, physics is not a job that you just walk off the street. And, you know, I saw a study somewhere that uh, virtually every person with a degree in astronomy has, has a job in astronomy. And that's because they figure out that if you do, if you're not in the right person in the right place, then an astronomy job is completely useless. So it's not that astronomy gets you a job. It's that astronomy isn't overproducing students for jobs. But in America, at least biology and physics are. They're STEM. So you can major in them and it's a good idea, but it's actually, it's not a good idea financially. And then- Yeah. I mean, to to go work as a lab technician is not going to be easy to break out of. And if you go and try and, you know, get a PhD and become a faculty member, well, we know where that leads. That leads to 10 years of part-time, insecure jobs, uh, maybe what one in 10 will get a, a tenure-track job. Um, but, you know, the attrition rate in, in science and the way people are treated and the kinds of evaluations that you're subject to, which are entirely numerical now for, for science. It's, it's your citations, where you publish, journal impact factor, and your H index and end of. It doesn't matter if you're a great teacher or a great mentor or even a great scientist, frankly. Hmm. Yeah, look, that that terrifies me. I mean, I don't, I, I, I wish I had something positive to say in response to that, but that that is that is what I see is this hollowing out of uh, whatever it is that, whatever those numbers are supposed to measure. And we see this every time we get metricization, whatever the numbers are supposed to measure, as soon as you put numbers on them, you, they, they cease to count those things. So at the university of North Carolina, all of the first year writing uh, classes have 19 students in them. And it's because U S news and world reports. One of the things is number of classes with fewer than 20 students. So they thought, oh, we got these classes. They're being taught by graduate students. Nobody really cares about them. They should be relatively small, but let's make them 19 instead of 22. There's not actually a difference between 19 and 22 in the classroom. But as far as the metrics are concerned, there's a huge difference. So once you're counting these things, that's all you're counting. Once you're counting journal impact score, the goal of journals is not to do science. It's to, quote, 
impact score. And that, that seems to be perverse. It's, you know, it, it's terribly hard now to figure out a way to develop your academic profile, because certainly when, when I was a younger scholar, you would look for some niche journal for your first publications. Right. And, um, you know, publications coming out of your dissertation, say. But now, you know, you're being judged against the same criteria as a distinguished professor. So what's the journal impact factor of that journal? Well, 0.5. Well, don't publish there then. <laughs> you know, slog away until you get something published by, I don't know, the Journal of Linguistics or the Journal of Sociolinguistics or, or whatever it is. Um, and that's really not how you should be bringing younger scholars on. They should be developing a sense of what a journal article is and what makes it um, publishable. And, you know, maybe finding people to work with, um, as well as getting good feedback from those niche journals. And it seems that we're no longer giving them that leeway to, to develop themselves over about 10 years. You know, that's really what you need to be hitting the, the great heights. So, so, what, so what do we do? Uh, create the University of Austin, Texas is not, is not the answer, right? So what? I think what we do is what, what a lot of people are doing, which is saying, you know, this really isn't for me. And, you know, the great resignation is somewhat overblown. But there was a period last year when friends of mine, um, people I know from Twitter, were resigning about two a week just I've had enough of this. I really hate, and it's about hating the way that they're evaluated, which is also about feeling um, underappreciated as if they will never get out from under, that the metrics are coded in such a way that you will always be found wanting on one or more measures. And that offers a way in for the administration to say, well, you know, you're not getting grants, but here I've got some great publications and some great citations. But, you know, if you're not bringing in grants, you're not valuable to the institution and you're underperforming. And, you know, I was in a situation where uh, I wasn't a full professor, but most of my friends were, and a full 30% of them were put on performance improvement plans which meant that they could be downgraded, have their professorships taken away from mm. them um, if, they did, if they failed to so-called improve. And, you know, they all had international reputations. Otherwise, they would not have been promoted to those positions. They were all respected scholars. Books published with, you know, Cambridge University Press, uh, Stanford University Press, Duke University Press. And here they were being told they really weren't proper professors because they didn't have grants. But it's like, well, we're in arts and humanities. You know, we don't need a collider. We just, yes, but you're thieving from the institution if you use, uh, you know, your, your um, workload time to do research. Well, well, I don't. I do it at weekends and evenings. Didn't no, no argument cut through. They regarded you as stealing from the institution if you didn't bring in something equivalent to your salary. 
And it was essentially being like an indentured worker. Mm -hmm. you, you were working literally for your office, you know, your, your private office. You were supposed to bring in enough money to defray the expense and the inconvenience of employing you. Now, you know, what greater insult can you offer <laughs> an employee? <laughs> you know, it was just awful. And so you had this, this sense that you were highly valued by the students because they would tell you so. But the administration had nothing but contempt for you. This is, I mean, what's remarkable about the story you just told, Liz, is that this, that story basically mirrors mine completely, except it had nothing to do with grants. It was a totally different system. It was primarily a teaching job, but it was the same situation. I was put in a, you know, performance improvement situation and told I basically had to, to sing for my supper. And if, I, and if I didn't, that was the end of my time there. It was completely contemptuous from the administration and the students, you know, the students found out about it, not, not from me, but through uh, colleagues or alum. Um, and the students would come to me and say like, they can't do this to you. This is wrong. You're, you're so valuable, but being valuable to the students doesn't I mean, at a school like mine, where the job was teaching, it seems like it should have mattered to me a lot more than it did. But at a place like you're talking about, the administrators will explicitly say, teaching is not what we are here to. And when you tell students that, they say, wait, the point of college is for professors to get grants not to teach me, then why am I going? I say, well, I don't know. Well, what led to my resignation I don't know if you read that story. Mm -hmm. I, I did. But yeah. the, the podcast listeners will not have heard it. Okay. I, um, I wrote about this conundrum um, because, you know, watching my colleagues fall apart under this regime of cruelty. I mean, it was, it was a Stephen Caldry um, uh, theatre of cruelty, really. <laughs> Um, is it was it Stephen his name I can't remember anyway Caldry and you know grown men grown women full professors weeping in my office on a daily basis and that had an effect on me because mm -hmm. their mental health unraveling the stress on me was awful and came about that you know one of my colleagues close colleagues fell sick and wanted wanted the students to know what it was had led to this sort of catastrophic collapse, collapse of, you know, body, soul, mind, confidence, everything. So I went to the class to explain to them that their lecturer was ill and was going to be away for quite some time in my estimation and exactly what had happened. So, you know, the pressure on them to get grants to, publish in high quality journals and that whatever they did it was never enough there was mm -hmm. some other target that was uh, installed that they would inevitably fall at and however good they were and this was somebody that they absolutely revered as knowing their stuff and being supportive and being a fantastic lecturer and they just couldn't believe the way that this person had been treated. And, you know, as I started to tell the story, I, I was sobbing. Mm -hmm. I was 
sobbing at this point. It was the most cruel, unorthodox, unnecessary thing I'd ever seen. And, you know, the warmth of the students and are you all right? And, you know, please pass on our love and best wishes to the colleague. Anyway, I went home and I wrote a blog piece about it um, and about the stress on lecturers and just what, how this results in uh, mental health difficulties and absolute collapse. Um, but it wasn't specific to any one institution because, as we know, you know, you can Google it and come up with any number of stories exactly the same. And I had referenced these, hyperlinked them in the piece. It was clear. I didn't mention any one institution. I mentioned, you know, brought in um, quotes from people from across the world, actually, um, and published it on my blog. And it was one of those wonderful things where, you know, you, you just watch your Twitter <laughs> sort of retweets going around like a slot machine. I was like, oh, my God. Anyway, you know, the Times Higher, which is our chronicle, um, picked up on it about a day or two later. Can we publish it? Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, and unfortunately, they did, you know, put my institution underneath, which right. I, I could have objected to. But, you know, it's like, why should I? You know, I wrote the piece. That's my credential that designates me as a, a scholar. And I... Um, Got an email about eight o'clock one night. You know, you're required to have an interview with the Pro Vice Chancellor, and I knew exactly what it was. Uh, you know, did you write this? I, <laughs> <laughs> I did. I said, and it's had a hundred thousand hits on my blog, and it's been trending for four days in the Times Higher, and you're the first person who doesn't like it. <laughs> so that didn't win me any favor. So they threw the book at me and I ended up with um, two counts of gross misconduct. They charged me with three. That It was, um, let me try and remember, one was um, violating confidentiality, which I hadn't done because I hadn't mentioned anybody's name. Nobody could be identified. So that one did fail. But bringing the university into disrepute, oh. you know, the thing was I had an email between me and the editor of the Times Higher, or the editor that I was working with, saying, please do not edit this piece to appear as if I'm being critical of the institution, because I wasn't. I right. didn't, wasn't intend. So I had that email, face the evidence that I had never intended to bring the institution into disrepute, and indeed had not done because it had not been named in the piece. Oh, but it had the potential to do <laughs> <laughs> so that was enough to convict me. Oh, and the other one was um, um, dereliction of duty or some such because I had frightened the students. I was charged with frightening the students as well because I had told them I was worried about their mental health under, under right. the strictures of teaching of COVID. And they said, well, you... I actually had to do training um, on uh, emotional quotient. I had to do EQ training to make sure that I didn't frighten the students in any more. So it was like, you know, Bob is talking to Nancy, but Bob isn't listening. What did Bob do wrong? And, and I had to take that training because I had told students that the, that the burden was too much for them to bear under the pandemic. I mean, I had a student at that time, I didn't know it, who uh, was the sole caretaker uh, of their grandmother who had cancer. 
Anne was trying to do this full-time uh, teaching, this full-time learning load. So when I told the students, I thought they were overburdened and in danger. That seemed that seemed not to be lacking in EQ. That seemed to be the kind of thing that needed to be said. But I got a classic managerial training out of it so that I wouldn't frighten the students anymore. Yeah, I mean, that was the point at which I thought, well, you know, I don't want to sit here and play gotcha games anymore. Mm. I don't want to be spend the rest of my career doing defensive driving because it was clear it wasn't one piece that they didn't like. It was the fact that I had a blog and I'd had it and they could see where I was going with it. Um, and I thought actually that blog's quite important to me. Yes. And um, being uh, a voice within higher education commentary that who, who has some credibility is important to me. And I'm not going to be able to do that if I stick with this job. I'm just going to be doing a job that frankly I was hating um, and watching my colleagues unravel un under the pressure of it. So at that point, I just pushed my resignation across the desk and said, you know, th thank you for, you know, uh, wasting your time and money on this hearing. But, um, <laughs> they, they weren't going to fire me because what was the point? You know, the, the, the object was to uh, quell me by this threat of gross misconduct hanging over me or whatever it would be, so that I was silenced. And so I, I decided to, to just exit the system. Yeah, the whole system runs on, runs on anxiety. Um, I mean, the entire wider economy runs on anxiety. This goes back to the David Simon quote. There were a few nodes where people did not have to be as anxious. And, you know, being an academic was one of them in the sense, at least of if you knew that if you were producing what you needed to produce, you know, I remember when I was on the job market, someone said, okay, Graham, if you get a tenure track job, you need to get one book published and then you will get tenure. That was just the rules. And in the past decades, there have been people who had two books published and didn't get tenure. So there, the anxiety has come for the academics and the, the managerial types love it because it gives them more power. They can call you into this meeting and say like, we, we don't like what you did. You may or may not have broken any rules, but there's, plenty of leeway, we get to interpret the rules and we can take away your, your, your paycheck, your life, your security, um, because we don't like what you did. And that's, that's sort of the end of the story. And there may be shame, humiliation, and cruelty involved, but there doesn't even have to be. I mean, certainly if you ask them, they will say there's no shame, humili humil uh, humiliation, or cruelty involved. They have just crunched the numbers and determined that you have done X points of damage to the reputation of the university. It's a business matter, nothing personal. Yeah, and that's right. And um, it is nothing personal to them. <laughs> replaced. That's what hurts the most, though, is that it's not It's not personal to them. It's, it's personal to me. It's my life. Well, it's, it's not, you're not a life to well, them. Yeah, I mean, if you met them in the street, they would be lovely to you. It's... That is their job. Is And I, I don't know how they sleep at night. But you're you're just a, a widget that is you know a, a, or a you know a duck that is no longer laying eggs, yeah. and uh, it's time to get rid. But it's nothing personal. Um, no, it's it's and and in the states, Wisconsin and Georgia are now going for post tenure review. Mm -hmm. Actually, is no tenure at all. 
Yes, Florida has moved in that way as well. It's, um, again, <laughs> this is the prophecy coming true. It is, there is no, there is no security. Um, there is no security unless, unless, you know, there seems to be pretty good security for, for provosts and, and presidents. The Chronicle had a story this morning that, you know, president salaries went up even as cuts were happening all over the country. So the, the people who are unable to see the damage they are wreaking on the lives of people who work at the university are themselves not exposed to those same forces and, and pressures. You know, Hobbes says that, uh, you know, the, the, the trade-off for the Leviathan is that everyone gets peace and security, but not the king, because the king is in this state of nature with the other kings. And in the university, it's precisely opposite. The presidents get to go eat together and golf or whatever it is they do. And then everyone lives in a state of nature underneath them. It's a reverse Leviathan. Right. (laughs) Which was not supposed to be the deal. (laughs) So the message then is to go into administration. (laughs) Yes, that that is the message. Um, Try and get an MBA from Harvard and or an, uh, a doctorate in education and parlay that uh, to be a university president. We have solved the problem, Liz. Great. You don't need any Harvard MBA. I mean, the doctorate is, is a, it's like a professional doctorate in leadership. <laughs> I believe they call it educational management in the UNC system, a doctorate really? in educational management. So yeah, I, I haven't started mine yet and I don't intend to. Okay, I've uh, I've kept you more than our time. Any any last thoughts or wor- words of wisdom? Well, yeah, I mean it's a it's a sorry story, and you know nobody has the answers, except I would hope to you know as you were saying in your very kind introduction, make the university more humane and build it around people, so that we're no longer just data points. But we are real bodies who fall apart, who have tragedies, who occasionally need to be somewhere else apart from on campus, uh, <laughs> who, you know, may at one time have flashes of inspiration to do research, other times not, um, who will always be committed to students. But, you know, their, their, their careers should unfold um, according to a self-generated um, wish list rather than somebody saying, you know, you're at year 15 of your career, you should have hit this landmark. Why have you not? You have to, you know, come up with an explanation and a, a plan of how you're going to achieve it in the next six months. You, you know, that is just an awful system to, to be working with. And I think, again, I'm, I'm hesitant to let the numbers in, but I have no doubt that that more humane system would in fact be more, quote, pr- productive. What, whatever it is that the managers want out of the university in terms of teaching, research, service, commitment, they would get it if they would trust people to make it for, for themselves. And that is, the fu- that is the final irony, is for all, all that they do, people like you and, and me with our commitment to the institution We'll, we'll leave the institution. And if we had remained, that would have actually, you know, been better for them. I, I truly, I truly believe that, but that's, 
that's not something that I've found a way to, to, to tell them. And I'm very scared to do it with numbers. I don't want to do it with numbers. No, no, absolutely not. Or if you do do it with numbers, because, you know, realistically is the way the world is moving. But for heaven's sake, give people a longer lead time. Evaluate them in five-year chunks, which I guess I'm saying is like post-10-year review. But, you know, give people some sense of where they should be five, 10, 15 years into their career, but don't hammer them over the head if they don't absolutely hit every single landmark every single year. I would also say give their peers, their grad students, the undergraduate students, God forbid, even the members of the community, a chance to weigh in on on the value of what they have brought to the school and, and the community and a very different picture will emerge. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. This has been uh, this has been such a pleasure, and uh, keep keep fighting the good fight. I will do. It's been lovely to meet you. Thanks very much for the invitation. <laughs> Wonderful. So that's it for this week's episode of Everyday Anarchism. Thank you so much to my guest, and also thank you to all of you who have contributed to the show, left a review on iTunes, or even sent me an email to everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. This show has no ads, no sponsors, and no paywall, so if you can, go to everydayanarchism.com and, and help keep the show going with some financial support. If you cannot, please just keep sending your emails, leaving the iTunes reviews, and telling your friends. The music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill. <laughs>